chapter 1 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 are some heavy ones. If you've been here, you've noticed that. They are heavy texts, talk of judgment and antichrist and rebellion and lawlessness and things like that. And yet here we are today, starting at verse 13, and we hear a much different word. There's a contrast here that we get, and I think the contrast is absolutely intentional from the author, the Apostle Paul. Today I'm going to use the word contrast many times. Contrast is when you compare things in order to show the differences. Perhaps you've been trying to make a decision before, and you said, let's weigh out the pros and cons. Let's compare and contrast. Let's see if we can help bring some clarity to the differences here or the options that we have. Sometimes in our home, we will go back and forth over the color of Eli or Liliana's hair. And some people say that they have black hair, and some people in our family say that they have brown hair, right? And one of the easiest ways to show what's brown and what's black is to hold up something black beside something that's brown, right? Does that make sense? Or perhaps you've been trying to put on some pants, and you couldn't tell if they were navy blue or black, right? And you said, no, these are navy. Somebody said, no, those are black. I said, no, those are not black. Black is black, black, like dark, dark. Like, no, these are, these are black. I said, no, I think they're navy, right? And the way that you can settle that is to pull out something black and put it beside something navy, and you're like, wow, they don't even look black anymore, right? That's what a contrast is. It's when you're able to take two things and compare them, and it makes the differences stand out. In this letter to the Thessalonians, Paul is now contrasting the difference between those who are being saved and those who are not. Those who have turned away from the judgment of God to be forgiven of their sins and the love that God has for us through Christ. And those who aren't believing that or ignoring that or rejecting that, there's a huge difference there. There's quite a bit of a contrast. This is what we see starting in the 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. If you would, please read with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But, see that but there is already showing us that he's shifting. There's a contrast. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort And good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This passage is quite a bit of a contrast from the passages that we have read leading up to this one. And there's good reason why. In this world, you will have trouble. Life is hard. There are bad days and rainy days. And when you think it can't get much worse, it can 
There are ups and downs, and there is hardship, and there is suffering, and there are all sorts of trials and struggles, and yet we are to be those who are of good courage and who have hope. And this passage reminds us of this. We need it. I have three points for you today, and the first is saved by God. The second is standing firm in the truth, and the third is comforted forever. All three of these right here in the text of God's word. Number one, saved by God. This is simple. This is old-fashioned. This is good old religion, if you want to say that. Saved by God. But it's very real when you see him saying saved by God after the contrast of what he just said. Chapter one talks about the return of Christ. This is a theme in the Thessalonian letters, first and second, that Jesus is coming back. The very reason why we have the second letter is because they think perhaps they had missed it. Christ had returned and somebody was telling them that Jesus already came back. Heaven's already been set up and they, they missed it is what they were thinking. So he writes them this letter saying, no, you didn't miss it. All these things are going to happen first. You, you didn't miss it. Those who don't believe, that's what chapter one's about. And then chapter two is answering their question about how much rebellion there will be and how much lawlessness there will be. The world is going to be full of people and more and more people who say, no, God's not real and he's, he's not coming and I don't have to worry about him and I don't ever have to alter my life based off of a God and what he says or expects from me. This sentiment, this attitude is just going to increase more and more and more. This is the way the world goes. It's the way it's always going and the way it's always going to go. And we see this here. And there are, there are people who more and more don't care about what God says. There are more and more people who think God hasn't said anything. There are more and more people who think, hey, if I go do this thing, there isn't a divine being that actually cares. I can go talk however I want to, or do whatever I want to, or treat people however I want to, and God doesn't even really care. Moreover, there isn't even a God that could care. And that's an attitude that we see in the world, and he speaks to that. It's described as lawlessness or lawbreakers, as Matt read. It just doesn't matter. Set in contrast to that are people who are saved by God. People who deep inside, to their core, say it does matter. It matters deeply. God is worshiped and honored and reflected, and shown, and witnessed to by how we are. From the smallest of deeds to the largest of efforts, it matters. Every word spoken, every action done, every person who is treated in any way matters. That's why I'm so thankful for Refuge International and the work that Chris and Elizabeth are doing. There's one single person that our church has been partnered with and we have the opportunity to treat this man well, to show him what God is really like, that we care, that matters to us. The people where God matters are those saved by God. Look what he says in verse 13. But we ought always give thanks to God for you. He had literally just talked about the work of Satan. Look back at verse nine. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. 
Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There are people who do not believe. There are people who are under delusion. There are people involved in the wicked deception of Satan. There are people who are taking pleasure in things that should not please us, pleasure in unrighteousness. And yet in contrast to that are the people being saved by God. And so Paul writes to this church in Thessalonica and says we ought always to give thanks to God for you. One of the surest characteristics that you've been really humbled by the goodness of God in your individual life is gratitude and thankfulness. I hope you're a thankful person. I hope you say thank you on a regular basis. I hope you don't take it for granted. I hope you don't think everything is owed and deserved to you, and so you're never thankful. One of the marks of the New Testament believer, even the apostle Paul here, is how much he says thank you. You see it time and time again. This is a short letter, but he's saying thank you many times. He says it here, and he opens the letter with thankfulness. 1 Thessalonians 1.3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers. But you remember just a few pages back, or just a page back in my Bible, it's in chapter 5 where he says that we are to give thanks to God in all circumstances. We are to be thankful no matter what. But then you also remember that's how he began the first letter. We give thanks to God always for all of you. He's a thankful person. Now, if you've read the book of Acts, like we've shown you a few times in this study, what was happening in Thessalonica was not necessarily the best thing ever, that they should be so happy and thankful. There was persecution there. They were opposed. Paul was run out of town in the book of Acts in Thessalonica. And yet he's still thankful because his thankfulness comes from God who has his hand upon his life, who has saved him from his sins who has brought him into the family of God, who has given him eternal life. And so he has much to be thankful for. His perspective is here because he's been saved by God. In saying that he is thankful for them, he then points out how much God is doing in their lives. And this is the way that we are to think about salvation. Unfortunately and sadly, us declaring that we've been saved has often been so deduced to the absolute most minimal thing that we could have possibly done, like I prayed a prayer or like I got baptized, in, in which that's the only evidence that there might be any salvation in our lives. But notice how heavy, actually how doctrinal, how theological it is what he says here. Look what he says. Brothers beloved by the Lord. The Lord loves you, Thessalonians. And here's why. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. It was God's plan, God's picking, God's choosing, God's electing that the Thessalonians, these Thessalonians, would have salvation. He goes further through sanctification by the Spirit. In coming to faith in Christ and being saved, the Holy Spirit then takes up resident inside of them the indwelling presence of God in the life of the believer, and that Spirit now puts them into an ongoing process here called sanctification to make them more and more like Christ, more and more holy, more and more conformed to the image of Christ for the rest of their lives. 
We recall Philippians 1.6, which we've mentioned many times here in our church over the years, where Paul writes to them, I am confident of this very thing, that the God who began a good work in your life will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And this work that God began, that he is bringing to completion, fulfilling and finishing in the life of the believer is the sanctification process, the process in which you and I or the Thessalonians are becoming more and more like Jesus. We hate our sins more. We repent more often. We pray to God and ask for forgiveness, all the while clinging to Christ and all the while while he is making us more and more holy like he is. That's happening in the life of the Thessalonians, and he knows that because he sees it. But then he even says at the end of verse 13, and belief in the truth. This is what it means to be saved. It means you admit that there was a time where you didn't believe the truth. The word didn't inform your life. The truth of God didn't turn on the light bulb in your heart and on your sins. The truth of the word of God was not the thing exposing who you are, breaking you down in humility before God and in the judgment that he's already talked about. It is the truth that has brought us to our sinfulness and brought us to our need of a savior in which we recognize that God loving us sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And whoever would believe and trust will be saved and forgiven. This is the message of God. And these Thessalonians have come to believe it. He goes on in verse 14 and he says, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of that happened. All that is in verse 13 came about because they came and preached the gospel. This is the way, the mode or the means, if you will, that God has designed it. When somebody goes and speaks the truth, people hear the truth. And when people are hearing the truth, the Holy Spirit causes it to be a little bit more than just ears. He causes it to be ears and eyes and hearts and wholeness and whole beings that wake up to the truth, that respond to the truth. God makes dead bones alive and stone hearts living. He makes people believe. And that happened because they came and preached the gospel. These Thessalonians are not just people that signed up when the missionaries came to town. These aren't people that went to just a, a crusade or a revival meeting. These are people who have been saved by God. And that contrast is incredibly big when you talk about those who are in the rebellion and the lawlessness and not believing. Let's look at just a couple things right here. In verse 11, it says they believe what is false. In verse 12, it says they did not believe the truth. Okay? But in verse 13, those who are being saved believe the truth. A clear contrast. I want to ask you today, are you being saved because you believe the truth? Do you believe the truth of this book? Do you believe that God made you and you are totally accountable to him? Do you believe that one day you will stand before God and answer to him? The Bible says this will be the case. You will answer to him. And do you believe that we are guilty before him to have broken his law in one small area means that we are guilty of all of it? He's the standard and we're not. He is holy and we aren't. 
Gordon Fee writes, the Thessalonians would have seen it for what it was almost certainly intended to be, this passage, a thanksgiving to God for them, standing in stark contrast to the immediately preceding gruesome litany of judgment and condemnation of those who are persecuting them. Folks, it's an honest observation when you look around the world today that there are many people who aren't concerned to be living their lives in view of God. It's an honest observation wherever you go to observe that people today, many people today, are not living their lives in light of God and Him being our maker and the one who loves us and the one who sent his son to be the sacrifice for us. But it is the observation of the Bible that God is creating people still, where that is the most important thing in the world. We look to God. We believe him. He is working in our hearts. He convicts us of our sins, and he builds us up. He doesn't beat us down. He builds us up in forgiveness and in strength and in character and in hope and in perseverance, that we will keep believing his good gospel. We are being saved by God. This contrast is obvious here in 2 Thessalonians, but the contrast that we find throughout the scriptures is always there. That's why we read this passage, or Matt read it, at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. We read two parts of it. The last part of the Sermon on the Mount is building your house on the rock. And it's Jesus himself that says, some people build their house on the sand. And when the storm comes, it cannot withstand it. But some people build their house upon the rock. And when the storms of life come, uh, being built on the rock, it can withstand the storm. And Jesus is the one who points out that his word is the very rock. But the passage before that is a little bit different. It's the one that describes people getting to heaven and saying to Jesus, we did these things for you, and Jesus saying, I never knew you. There's a contrast between people who know God and people who think that they know God. Well, the passage before that one that we didn't read is about a tree and its fruit. And it's talking about a wolf in sheep's clothing, and it's talking about a false teacher, and it's talking about trees that bear fruit and trees that do not bear fruit. And what I'm pointing out is that the Bible often uses a contrast to help us recognize, help us recognize that which is genuine and that which is not. Now, I know as much as you know that there's all sorts of stuff in the world that we look at and go, I don't know if that's really what Christianity is supposed to be like. I don't, think, I don't really think that's how people of God should be acting. Well, of course. The Bible says that not all Israel is Israel. And we can conclude that not all Christians are Christians. And not all church is church. And not all Christianity is Christianity. You need to know that. But the way we recognize the real from the real is because we have read what God has said. We have been taught by him about what it means to be saved by God. If you're a believer here today, I want to challenge you to recognize in verses 13 and 14 what God is doing in your life. Are you saved by God? Do you believe the truth? Is his spirit in you? Is his spirit growing you? 
Have you been chosen by God? Are you loved by him? Have you heard the gospel, even this morning, heard the preaching of the word of God and felt your soul responding, saying, that's me, that is me. God is doing that in my life. He's doing that in me. And even as the scriptures are read, and even as the happy grandmas are making stuff to make their lives count, we watch these videos, and even as there are, there are people here in South Louisville trying to take the smallest little step, you mentioned hundreds of thousands fleeing Afghanistan, but our little church has the opportunity to serve one guy, one Afghan-believing refugee, and you think, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. I want my life to be in response to what God is doing in my heart through the power of Jesus that changes lives. So be it that there may be a world of people who don't care about that, but the power of God in me is making me want to. That's what it means to be saved by God, and he is thankful for them. Since they are saved by God, number two, he challenges them to stand firm in the truth. This is our second point this morning. After verses 13 and 14, we get to verse 15, and he makes a conclusion. He says, so then, since 13 and 14 are true, and 13 and 14 are in true in light of 2, 1 through 12, then here's what we need to recognize, brothers. Stand firm. Stand firm. It's a good word. So often, folks, we think in the world that being successful or being heroic or being uh, um, uh, legendary is when you go out there and do something amazing, something that everybody's going to see and something that is going to make such an impact. And yet so often in Christianity, it's not that. Y'all, we don't need many heroes in Christianity. We have a hero in the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us went to the grave for us and rose again to conquer sin and death and the devil. Those three awful things, sin, death, and the devil, for as bad as they are, had nothing or no power to stop Christ. And he dealt with them and he has overcome them and he lives. Christ is alive. And so often we think, well, I gotta go out there and do something to make Christ look awesome. No, we don't. We need to believe that Christ is all that he is and stand firm on that. You need to hear this word this morning, that you didn't come to church this morning hoping that I've come up with some incredible sermon that's gonna motivate you to go out here and change the world, because that's not what I'm here for, and that's not what I want you to hear. What I want you to hear is the Bible's call from the mouth of God to stand firm believing God saved you. Stand firm believing that the blood of Christ washes away sins. Stand firm believing that by faith alone, not by any good works that you've ever done, not by loving your neighbor, not by helping the poor, not by caring for refugees, not by any good works are you in the right relationship with God, but through the finished work of Christ that you believe, stand firm on it. And while lawlessness increases all around us, and you know people that used to be believers, and you know people that used to believe the Bible, you know people that used to go to church, you can stand right there saying, hey, we are standing firm in the fact that God loves us, and Christ is our Savior. He tells them this, stand firm. Along with standing firm, though, he also says in verse 15, to hold on, or hold fast, or hold tightly to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. I'm a little bit tempted for us to kind of take a break and do an entire sermon on this very thing. 
Because boy, Christianity is so caught up these days in the last 20 years, especially on traditional or contemporary, right? We get so worked up over those things. Traditional. Well, he uses the word traditions here. We gotta make sure we understand what he's saying. There's a big difference when we start talking about traditions. If traditions are right, then they should continue. If traditions are wrong, then they should stop. You understand that? Hey, just because it's tradition doesn't mean it should go on. Just because that's the way we've always done it doesn't mean that we should keep doing it that way. If it's a bad tradition and a dumb tradition, well, let's end it right now and let bygones be bygones. Hey, we used to do it that way, and we were worse off because of it. Traditional does not always mean good. But here when he mentions traditions... He's talking about the true gospel, the true word of God that has been passed on over the years. He's talking about the message that they received from him. And Paul received it from somewhere, and they received it from somewhere. We have testimony in the Bible that the disciples got the message from Jesus Christ himself. And the message of salvation comes to us, passed on over the years through the traditions. But one thing we know so sure in Christianity is that we never attach ourselves to individuals. We may have authors that we like or preachers that have had an influence in our lives or something like that. But we know better than to form all of our views and all of our theologies and all of our beliefs based off of people. So when he says traditions here, what he is meaning is the truth of the word of God. And so he clarifies when he says that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. And this is one of the places where we know that he wrote a previous letter. This is 2 Thessalonians, and he's most likely referring to 1 Thessalonians. They are to stand firm, not in their own strength. They are to stand firm, not in positivity or goodness, but they are to stand firm on the truth of Christ that they have been taught. This is Christianity, that while the world may not agree with us, and while there are lots of people who do not believe what we believe, we are called by God, exhorted here to stand firm on, yes, this is what we believe. Now, there's another contrast here. Look at verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 2. Where he says to them, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. We must admit that there's a tendency in this life for us to be naive or for us to be gullible where we start believing something that we should not believe. We start going in a direction that we should not be going or we start being about something that we should not be about. That happens. That is real. We've all heard of a young person that got caught up in the wrong crowd. Well, getting caught up in the wrong crowd happens to people, too. It happens to adults, too. It happens to people who watch too much TV and listen to too many podcasts. It happens to people who listen to too much radio. It happens to people who aren't standing firm on what the Bible has taught you. And this is the calling of Scripture, that we would be standing firm. The Bible tells us this time and time again. 
In the Old Testament, we're told, choose this day whom you're going to serve. What are you going to believe? What are you going to live for? Paul writes in Romans 1.16, do not be ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to save. Paul writes later in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. We are to be standing firm. I'm reminded of the resolutions from Jonathan Edwards years ago when he said, resolution number one, I will live for God. Resolution number two, and if no one else does, I still will. That's what it means to stand firm. Resolution number one, I will live for God. Resolution number two, even if nobody else does, I still will. Now, let's be honest. If you're trying to decide if you're going to stand firm by looking around at everything and seeing if it's worth it, you're going to probably talk yourself out of that. But if you're trying to decide if you're going to stand firm based off the truth of this being saved by God, the power of God, a knowledge of the truth, the power of the Spirit working in you, forgiveness of sins, hope in a future, eternal life, peace on the inside, there, an experience with God, knowing Jesus Christ, blessed assurance, that will empower you to stand firm, standing firm in the truth. Number one, they are saved by God. Number two, they are challenged to stand firm in the truth. And number three, lastly, he prays for them to have comfort forever. Look at verse 16. This is a prayer. He prays for them. You know, you can learn a lot about living for Jesus by observing how people pray. This is one of the reasons why about a few years ago, we changed up how we uh, do our service on Sunday morning right before the preaching. And in our service, we have a pastoral prayer And we know that that's an extended, committed time to pray. We look for something specifically to pray toward. Today we prayed for uh, uh, the sunrise work with with abused kids in Kentucky. And every one of us ought to have felt that today. The state we live in. The state we're raising our kids in. My old Kentucky home. This state is the worst in the United States of America at abusing kids. I didn't know that until that video. And we can't just shut up about that. Who's doing it? Is it our families? Is it, is it these dads? What a sickening thing. It ain't New York. It ain't Illinois where they got Chicago there. It ain't Florida. It's this. Rural Traditional state. It's the worst in America at abusing kids. I hate the thought of that. So this morning, we prayed about it. And we even gave you a handout in the bulletin that says we should be, or we got an opportunity to give toward that work. That's a hard work. That's a hard work, but it's something that we care about. Then we prayed for the Afghan refugees that are coming. And then we prayed for two of our people that are going this week to Africa. 
to see where God might lead them. You can tell a lot about believers by how they pray, how much they pray, and what they pray for. You can tell what matters to people by what they're praying for, can't you? You can leave out of here today going, my church cares about those things. Now, prayer ain't all that we do, but prayer is something. And what we see Paul doing here is praying for these people, praying for these that are saved by God, praying for these that when he got to Thessalonica on a frontier mission trip that believed, that responded, that God changed them and brought them to salvation and brought them into a relationship with Christ. He challenges them to keep standing firm on what they had been taught, and now he prays for them. In verse 16, here's what he says. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. You know, a lot of times we think praying is complicated. We hear people say on a regular basis, I I don't know what to pray. I don't know how to pray. Here are two small verses right here that would hardly take any time that would be a fantastic model for you to start praying. Maybe we should start praying for people to have comfort because that's what he's praying. He prays that the truth of God and the truth of the gospel would be the very thing that establishes them and settles them. But I want you to notice what he says about comfort. And when I was studying this week, I was taken back by it. I don't think I'd ever heard in my life this phrase, eternal comfort. Eternal comfort, what a thought. What a good thought. Eternal comfort is something that says you can be comfortable forever. Forever, right? Eternal comfort. That's a real thing because it's peace in your heart. It's joy in your mind. It is a loving relationship with the one true God, your Father in heaven. There is comfort there. There is a real comfort from God when we believe him. In that video that we watched earlier about the happy grandmas, I think that's what it was. I really liked that video. But I liked at the end how they're talking about they want to put a note on the thing that they're making. And they mentioned how they want to make sure they include that while this little stuffed animal might bring you some comfort, that there's really a comfort from God. I didn't plan that. The sound guys that prepared the video didn't plan that. But my final point today is that being comforted by God is a real thing for eternity, here today and forever. And they wanted it to say, on the stuffed animal in their shoebox, we want the love of God to comfort you. Now, let's finish on a contrast, right? There are some people here today, there are some people in our lives that think, comforted by God, yeah, right. God doesn't comfort me. I want to challenge you here today, and I want to push you here today to believe That through Christ, who died on the cross for us, to satisfy the judgment of God on our behalf, you can be comfortable forever. Now here's the thing about being comfortable forever. We hate 
to be uncomfortable. And I know that. I know that now that it's 12.05 and I start speaking strongly about child abuse in Kentucky, y'all don't like that. That's uncomfortable. I know that. I know that y'all are saying, wrap it up, get me out of here. I need fresh air so fast. I know that. We hate to be uncomfortable. I get poison ivy really badly. And if I just walk out in the yard when somebody's mowing some poison ivy, I'll catch it. It'll spread all over me, and it'll bubble up, and it's horrible. And when I've got poison ivy, I can't get comforted. can't even sleep. I try to put on long sleeves to sleep. doesn't work. Put socks over it. doesn't work. And I'm just uncomfortable. Every time you turn, everywhere it rubs, it, it bumps up against something, and it's so uncomfortable. Would you admit here today that you've not tried God to be your comfort, but you haven't been able to find comfort? And we're wanting so many things in this life to comfort us, and it's just not doing it. And the Bible introduces for us here today eternal comfort. Comfort forever. That's a prayer. I want to encourage you today to trust in Christ. Be saved by God. Stand firm in that truth. And let God's love comfort you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that 2 Thessalonians brought us this contrast. And in the midst of those who are turning away from God, we have those that God is working in. Father, I pray that you would be building us up in the faith, that we would be believing the truth. And being here on a Sunday morning is serving us well to be receiving this message. Oh, Father, save our souls. Lead those to salvation. Cause us to respond. God, make us not weak. Make us firm, standing firm. Comfort us forever, we ask. God, thank you for this prayer from Paul. We pray, God, that you would help us to see the contrast in the world of those who are about you, trusting Christ and those who aren't. Oh, Father, we thank you for this Sunday morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Sing first or Lord's Supper first? We're gonna sing first. And as we're singing, we wanna give you a chance to respond. I wanna ask for you to be comforted by God. If you're here today and you need to be baptized, we wanna help you move in that direction. If you want to be a part of our church, you can let us know that. If you need to be reminded here today to stand firm, maybe you just bow your head and pray to God there. Let's sing this final song, and as, as, after we sing, we'll take the Lord's Supper together.